Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, many post-secondary students are still paying rent during the pandemic, despite them not living in those vacant units. How do they proceed, especially with evictions looming in Ontario? Kareem Assad joins us to give us some advice to those students. A study done last month found that more and more people rely on social media for their COVID-19 information, and the more they're exposed to misinformation because of that. Are conspiracy theories creating a public health crisis in Canada? And mental health advocates are working on an alternative to police intervention when there's somebody in mental health crisis. What are the alternatives right now, and what are the solutions? It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We are slowly but surely heading towards uh, Labor Day, which for many people is going to be uh, the resumption of the school year at all three levels, elementary, uh, secondary, and, of course, post-secondary. Uh, one of the uh, the problems, and some people are considering this to be a crisis right now, is what about those post-secondary students? Many of them, of course, uh, were going to school out of town. And as a result, they have to find some sort of accommodation. And that's pretty difficult to do at the best of times. Well, even in these times, uh, a lot of them have had to put down payments down. Uh, if you're living in Hamilton and wanting to go to school in London or vice versa or at U of T or whatever the case might be, well, now you're being told by those institutions that uh, it's not going to be business as usual. Uh, that the you don't, you know, as a matter of fact, there aren't going to be any classrooms. So what do you do with your landlord? How do you try to deal with the fact that you probably made signed a lease in many cases? You now you don't need to go to that other city because it's all going to be virtual learning, especially in, in the post-secondary. It's a crisis and a financial crisis for an awful lot of people. And students that are concerned about how they're going to have to pay rent during this pandemic despite not being able to live in those vacant units. So let's uh, see if we can get some, some light shed on this subject. And uh, we're so pleased as a result of uh, this crisis that we can talk to uh, Carmia Syed, who is a lawyer in Notary Public, uh, specializing in landlord intended issues. Uh, Carmia, thank you so much for the time. I'm glad you could join us today. Thank you for having me. This is, a, this is a, a problem that I guess is probably under the radar for an awful lot of people, but when you look at the financial circumstance that students who are heading into post-secondary education are looking at, and the amount of effort and work that has to go into finding accommodation in the first place, usually in an outside city, uh, these people are literally between a rock and a hard place here, aren't they? Very much so. Um, and, you know, on top of classes possibly not resuming, we also need to account for the fact that students' income may have been affected, especially those who relied on on-campus jobs. Yeah, uh, I, I, again, so many different aspects and factors to this whole thing. I mean, let's face it, if you are living outside of your, your hometown and going to university or college in one of those cities, uh, the student loan situation, which I, we can probably delve into because that's certainly going to be a factor, but you're right, it, the, there has to be some sense of income, at least in many of those cases. Students are working part-time, sometimes on campus, sometimes someplace else in town, uh, those jobs are pretty much dried up as a result. So uh, that only exacerbates this problem. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, the expression between a rock and a hard place, I think that that's a pretty fair characterization, mindful that um, landlords who hold properties in sort of student central cities uh, may also um, be bracing for tough times um, as sort of some of these contracts and leases um dissolve or are dealt with um you know so it's it's bad times for everyone i would say 
Well, let me ask you, let's deal with some, which I think is probably going to be a pretty common concern for an awful lot of the students that find themselves in a situation like this. Uh, they've signed a lease in, in another city for whatever kind of accommodation they could come up with and they could afford. So they've got a lease. More often than not, these leases are for the school year. Sometimes they're for 12 months, but oftentimes they can be for eight or nine months, depending on, the, uh, I guess, the, the, the landlord in a situation like that. Uh, if you found out that you're, you're not going to have to go to that city, if they're going to be virtual classes instead, can you just walk away from that? What are the legal requirements? And let's let's start with the with the tenant who just signed this lease. Uh, what are they allowed to do? What they can and cannot do? And then we'll talk about the the landlord aspect of it. So it's not so easy as as just walking away and um, being free from any consequences or repercussions. Um, for the tenants, I would say that um, really the first course of action is to be upfront and candid with the landlord. Um, so you may need to work together. Um, the best types of compromises um, often involve unhappiness on, on both sides of, of the agreement. Um, but if a tenant uh, at least provides clear and ample notice, puts the landlord um, or makes them aware, rather, that, that they need to find an alternate tenant, um, that would be the first step. Um, and, and if there is no real entertaining of that type of negotiation, um, tenants may well uh, seek assistance from the landlord and tenant board. Um, and one legal argument that I anticipate will come up is the concept of frustration. And frustration meaning that the contract um, is impossible to perform due to extenuating circumstances, external circumstances. Um, and and I, I would not be surprised um, to, to hear sort of more cases centering on this concept as the uh, year goes on. There is, as you mentioned, a board that they can answer and, and you know, put their case forth. But I, I got to figure, though, Karen, in situations like this, that, that board's going to be inundated with requests from people that are in this circumstance uh, from right across the province. Yeah, the, the irony is that even if an application is filed right away because of the backlog that predated COVID uh, due to understaffing at the board and was only exacerbated by not having normal operations for the past four or five months, um, you know, it, it could well be that by the time a matter is dealt with, um, you know, we are sort of well beyond uh, maybe even the term of that lease. Uh, so, so I think it behooves everyone to do their best um, to resolve the matter um, without relying on adjudication. Um, but of course, there is this power imbalance, um, generally between landlords and tenants, and particularly between students and uh, landlords. And, and for students or families with students that are looking and saying, well, that might be an option for us, I think we need to remind them, I guess, uh, at this stage, that if you decide to take that tact, and that is something that's open to them, uh, you better stand in line behind the people that are also uh, before that tribunal because they can't afford to pay their rent because the minimum wage was cancelled uh, by this government a while ago. Uh, people have lost their jobs because of COVID, uh, have filed up under that board too because they can't pay rent in often situations like this. So uh, this, this is why we're talking about, you know, the, the numbers of people that are going to be impacted by this are just phenomenal, really. It's pretty bleak. Um, and you mean in sort of normal times and normal circumstances, the majority of applications that the Landlord-Tenant Board deals with are eviction applications. Um, so uh, what may be an influx of um, tenant applications will only sort of add to the burden that the board is carrying. 
Um, and on top of all of that, uh, if I may, um, recent changes to the Residential Tenancies Act um, really expand the jurisdiction of the board, give it more powers and more responsibilities, matters that otherwise would have been dealt with in small claims can now go through the board. So at a time when um, the the infrastructure is already struggling um, to, to keep up with the workload, um, it, its responsibilities just increased. If somebody decides to go down that road, uh, do, do they need legal representation or can they do it on their own? It, it can be done on one's own. Um, so the, the board is meant to be um, sort of accessible and, and friendly to lay people. Um, what I would suggest is, at the very least, um, trying to speak with duty counsel um, through the landlord tenant board, um, who who may be able to kind of put uh, or, or crystallize the legal issues, um, because sometimes what feels relevant and important um, isn't actually legally relevant. Um, so I think it's always a good idea um, to to get a legal opinion um, and. Uh, in some cases, uh, it, it's it's a challenge to navigate the system. Um, so it may uh, you may actually be better off with representation, case by case. But uh, at the initial step, um, I, I I absolutely recommend that um, people try to to seek legal advice. One of the other options, Karima, that's, I guess, been well-worn over the years, of course, is to find somebody to sublet the apartment to. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. as long as the landlord's getting the money, you know, more often than not, they're pretty satisfied with that. Uh, and although that might be an option, uh, it's got to be pretty difficult, I would think, especially in a university town like London or Hamilton, people going to McMaster or Mohawk or, or to Western University or anyplace else. Uh, if there's no students, there's not a whole lot of people banging on the door looking for apartments, is there? Absolutely. Um, and, and I should say that um, depending on sort of what the tenant is looking for, if they want to eventually return to that apartment, then subletting makes sense. Otherwise, they may want to ask for an assignment, um, which is where they sort of transfer the lease to someone else. Um, and, and the difference there being if it's a sublet, um, the tenant is actually at the end of the day still responsible for paying the rent or for any damage that's caused, and they would have to go after the subletter um, versus an assignment where tenant is now out of the picture and the new tenant deals directly with the landlord all right let's let's talk about the landlords and and as you say we can talk about the hardship on the students and that's legitimate uh, it's a hardship for people that are in in that business as well i mean let's face it they're counting on that income uh they may be using that income from the, the rental properties to actually pay the mortgage on that property when that dries up they're finding themselves in a, in a very difficult predicament too what how can they approach this and what can they do um, in my view, um, landlords, and particularly small landlords, really need to be ramping up their advocacy to call on all levels of government um, to, to provide support, and whether that's um, through financial relief, um, whether it's pressure put on the banks to deal more fairly with people and not penalize them for accepting deferrals. Um, there are a range of policy options. I don't think the solution is to sort of apply the pressure downward to tenants who are already, um, as I would say, more more vulnerable. Um, so I think that there needs to be lobbying effort that focuses on the real source of, of the hardship and um, what can be done to, to mitigate that. Have governments thought this through? As you say, those programs that you, you've just asked for, and I know that tenants and, and landlords are looking at right now, 
uh, we're getting it, you know, drip by drip by drip by the, from the federal and provincial governments in situations like this. But uh, uh, do you think there's an understanding of the magnitude of, of the, the problem here and the implications? I think a lot of our leaders have never had to worry about losing the roof over their head. And I think that that comes through very clearly in the type of policy um, that we see or where or what issues are prioritized. Um, so I, I do believe that there is a disconnect. Um, the fact that, you know, we, we haven't had um, any sort of rent program specific to rental housing. Uh, the fact that, for example, disabled people um, who perpetually have been getting less than the amount allocated for CERB um, barely qualified for any additional top-ups and them being the most vulnerable during the pandemic and uh, you know, there's overlaps as well between sort of disability and student status and renter status. Um, so, you know, to, it, it's easy sort of to sit back and criticize um, when, you know, we're not the ones making the decisions. Um, but uh, at the same time, I think we do have to hold our leaders to account. And uh, again, the, the individuals who are holding those positions of power live in a totally different world. And, uh, you know, that, that disconnect needs to be remedied. Well, and we saw that last week with the announcement, of course, that they're going to be phasing out the CERB benefit. And it's going to roll into to EI. We know that. But you have to wonder how many people are going to be left off that list now because they simply aren't going to be able to qualify for that. Uh, and, again, <laughs> it's, it's a, a age-old problem, I guess, about governments that don't think, think, think things through all the way through and think of the, the long-term consequences to this. And if, you know, if it were me, I think the the solution here is to really start from the bottom up. So start from who is in the most vulnerable position, who stands to lose the most. Let's offer assistance to those individuals and then work our way up the ladder because sort of the existential needs of, of shelter, of food, of medication, um, you know, that has to take priority. Um, and trickle down economics has never worked. Um, so if we start at the base and move upward, uh, it's a different strategy, but perhaps one that would cause more success. Karima, what would your advice be to somebody who's in a circumstance like this? They're listening to your, your conversation with me here right now and thinking, yeah, i got to do something about this. I'm, I'm really wondering, you know, what my next steps. Should that first step be the conversation with the, the landlord? I, I do. Um, start that conversation going, get it in writing, um, be as clear as possible about um, sort of the circumstances leading to it. Um, you know, while there's an interest in kind of being apologetic and polite and um, sort of using that kind of flowerly, flowerly language, um, I would say being as direct um, and remembering that uh, if it does eventually go to the board and the question becomes about whether a contract is frustrated, um, the tenant needs to explain why it's impossible for them to fulfill that contract, put the landlord on notice to try and find someone else, um, and, and maybe a compromise can be reached where um, there's a partial payout, the landlord agrees to end the lease um, sort of much more prematurely, uh, and we go from there. Karim Asad, lawyer in uh, Notary Public, uh, addressing a real concern that a lot of folks are feeling right across the province right now. Uh, landlords and tenants both adversely affected. Uh, thank you so much for the time. Great talking with you today. Anytime. Uh, take care and have a good rest of the day. You too. Good to have you with us. 
You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. One of the things that is probably exacerbating the situation are the conspiracy theories, a lot of them, of course, on social media, that are not helping in the public health crisis the pandemic has caused. Uh, we want to talk a little bit about this and the impact that they're having. And it's not just, well, you're entitled to your opinion. Uh, this is actually, in many people's cases, a life and death situation. Joining us to talk about the impact of this is uh, Eric Markley, who is a uh, Ph.D. postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Political Science at the University of Toronto. Eric, thank you so much for the time. I'm glad you could join us today. Yeah, thanks for having me here. Conspiracy theories are not new. And I guess it was inevitable that with COVID-19 and 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 especially in the early stages, Eric, not a whole lot of information available about the virus, that uh, these things were going to spin out of control, and it certainly has. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, you know, we know uh, from a a wide range of of academic research that in times of stress and and, and uncertainty, people gravitate towards conspiracy theories. Uh, And, you know, in the absence of uh, of information early on in the pandemic, uh, it it was bound to happen, and so it has. Well, let's talk about a couple of those, and uh, I, I suppose one that was inevitable was the anti-mask movement, and we've seen blatant examples of that. Of course, we've seen rallies and, and, and people getting very upset. I mean, we saw what happened in Michigan a couple of weeks ago. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, gun-toting people were saying, you have, you can't make me wear a mask. Now, uh, and it's we've seen them in Hamilton. We had a, a rally just a week or two ago here in downtown Hamilton about this sort of thing. Uh, and it's, in many people's minds, this is the right thing to do, and, and this, the theories about wearing a mask uh, that cuts off oxygen to the brain and all sorts of other things are, are baseless but at the same time people are gravitating to it yeah so uh you know we've been tracking a number of, of different um conspiracy theories over the course of the pandemic uh and you know it's, it's important to note though that you know only a minority of canadians endorse any one of them um but they are vocal uh and so you know the anti-mask movement um you know it's, these to some degree are are rationalizations uh of of a, of a position that they've taken uh, you know, in, in large part influenced by certain political elites in the United States, Republicans in particular. Um, and so these, these kind of rationalizations uh, emerge uh, from these kind of very entrenched positions. Um, it's, it's not surprising, but it's, you know, it's still worth considering that, you know, most Canadians don't endorse these theories. Well, and it's probably worth uh, reminding ourselves that, yes, it's true that back in the early days of this, uh, early days of February and March, uh, many of the medical experts were saying a mask is not necessary. But Absolutely. Yeah. that was then, this is now. We don't know, we know a lot more about the virus than we did back in those days. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, you know, this is, this is a very, it's a, it's a new, it's a new disease. Uh, you know, scientific experts are, are learning about it. Uh, facts change. Um, and, and realities on the ground change too. Um, you know, they were worried about masks shortages and, and the, the impact that could have on medical professionals. And so, you know, circumstances changed and experts changed accordingly. And that's what we should expect them to do. Um, but, unfor- you know, it, but, you know, it's a time of times of stress and uncertainty. You know, people want, you know, consistent information. They want a sense of certainty. Uh, and, uh, you know, having these conspiracy theories, you know, finding patterns and noise. Uh, it, it brings people comfort, and and that's why we're seeing this. Are, are we still stuck in this uh, naive approach to social media that if we saw it in print, that it's probably true? Uh, you know, I think there's there's some of that. So what we you know what we find in our paper is that uh, you know people that are uh, heavy users of social media, they're more likely to endorse uh, misperceptions or conspiracy theories uh, related to COVID nineteen. Uh, and so some of this is, you know, there appears to be an information aspect to this where they're, they're getting, they're picking this up off of social media and they're more likely to believe it. 
Um, and, you know, there's, there's two elements to that. So some of it is, is what we call motivated cognition, where people that are kind of already, you know, very hostile to this kind of just reflexively accept these conspiracy theories and misperceptions that they see on social media. Some of it is also probably a digital literacy problem uh, where people aren't able to, uh, you know, adequately uh, identify credible sources from non-credible sources. And, and then they believe the information that they see on social media. There's probably a little bit of both going on, but it seems like social media is having an important role here. Well, and that's a variation on a theme that we've been dealing with for quite some time, isn't it? Uh, it's, again, being purported by some political leaders and, and some broadcasters, frankly. The yeah. quote-unquote mainstream media is, is where all the BS is, and if you want the truth, you go on to the, the social media. Yeah, yeah, that's, that, yeah absolutely. And, and you know, what we, what we see is that there, there really is a big difference. In, in our paper, we kind of compare, uh, you know, COVID-19 information on, on Twitter uh, versus what's uh, ha- happening in the mainstream news. And uh, we find a, a pretty stark comparison where misinformation is just far more common on social media than in mainstream media. Uh, and as a result, you know, if you're, if you're suspicious of mainstream media and you're trying, you're checking out alternative sources using social media, you know, you're more likely to get that information uh, and to accept it. So but, definitely... Uh, but, well... What I find head-scratching, though, Eric, is that so many people that we see on social media are, are ignoring not just the advice but the qualifications of people like, like Tony Fauci and others. I mean, if you look at this guy's CV, you figure he probably knows what he's talking about, yet so many people yeah. are simply dismissive of it because they, they've been told yeah. to be dismissive of it. Yeah, you know, some of, so one, one other project that our research team is working on is, is on how anti, anti-intellectualism has shaped people's responses to this pandemic. Uh, and so not, not everybody trusts experts. Uh, pe- some people are, are very distrusting of experts for a variety of reasons. Some of it's, you know, ideological conservatism or populism. Um, and, and as a result, you know, they're, they're suspicious of these sources. And then when they see information on social media that says, hey, you know, uh, that, that person can't be trusted. Uh, and then they give them another, you know, a conspiracy theory to believe in. They're likely to accept it. Uh, so, you know, that this is an important, important driver of, of a lot of public attitudes towards COVID is just, you know, not not everybody trusts experts. And that's and some of that's what's going on. There's the old saying, the bigger the lie, the more people will believe it uh, in, in situations like this. And we're starting to see this, I think, with some of the variations with with the COVID uh, conspiracy theories. We, we talked about the mask, anti-mask movement that's going on. Uh, another dissing the World Health Organization. We, we've already talked about the fact that people like Fauci and, and others are, are yeah. being disregarded. Uh, but then, of course, you've got some of the other ones that are... Uh, being perpetrated by well, let's talk about Donald Trump and some of the other folks that are talking yeah. about this, and some of some of his acolytes in, in some of the media sources down there. That this yeah. is a virus that was engineered in, in a Chinese lab, and they did this intentionally. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And that you know, what, the, you know, there's been a lot of focus, you know, in in terms of disinformation on social media and the like, on on you know Russian in, influence and, and all these other influences on social media. But so so much of the problem is just you know, very powerful elite sources of communication like presidents, uh, political parties, uh, sowing misinformation uh, and conspiracy theory. Like it's, it's uh, it, we, we don't see this very often. And it's a big reason why, uh, you know, the political climate is so much more polarized in the U.S. Than it, on this question than it is elsewhere. Uh, it's, it's a big, it's a big problem. And, and, it, and some of it trickles up into Canada too. Like we, we see that, you know, when we survey Canadians as to whether they think uh, COVID was engineered in a, in a, in a, as a weapon by the Chinese, 
you know, you know, about 20% of Canadians uh, endorse that view. So some of it has trickled north of the border. Uh, and variations on that theme too. Others suggesting yeah. the Chinese did this on purpose to try to cover up for the fact that they're getting just by on their 5G applications in, in, yeah. in different parts of the country. Uh, yeah. it, it, it's it's mind-boggling when you see some of these things, but it's probably even more mind-boggling that people are are, are gravitating to, to these things. Is but they, that's yeah. a preconceived bias that's being fed, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and with people, you know, endorse one conspiracy theory, they're likely to endorse others. These these beliefs tend to hang together, uh, and they and they have real kind of behavioral impacts. We find that that people that endorse more conspiracy theories and misperceptions, they're less likely to engage in social distancing uh, after a, controlling for a whole lot of other factors. So so these beliefs, um, you know, in people that have them, you know, are pretty are pretty damaging to public health. Well, therein lies the problem. As I say, this is not really just a, a debate whether, okay, you're entitled to your opinion, I'm entitled to mine. Lives yeah. are at risk, because if you're, if you're an anti-masker and you refuse to do that, and, and if you believe yeah. this whole idea here that I don't need to social distance, uh, yeah. the chances of, of spreading the virus are, are, well, increasing exponentially in situations like this. Yeah. And we've seen that south of the border, haven't we? Yes, no, Absolutely. And, you know, in, and to, to some degree in, in Canada, too, we, you know, one, our data shows that, uh, you know, trust in experts, so people that are really, really distrusting of experts, they're not, they're not adopting face masks. Uh, it's the people that are really trusting that are. Uh, and so this, this is shaping uh, Canadians' response uh, to the pandemic and uh, whether or not they uh, adopt uh, the recommendations of experts. And, and you know, when they're not, uh, people are put at risk. Uh, and the pandemic drags on as a result. Uh, so these, not not just in the U.S. but in Canada too, these 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 things matter. They have they have important health impacts. Eric, how problematic is it when, but the perpetrator of an awful lot of these myths and misconceptions? Uh, is is the president of the United States? Uh, because let's face it, as you say, we've always had conspiracy theorists, but oftentimes yeah. they were being dismissive. About, you know, well, that's just some whack job. Uh, you know, yep. some some. But the, the leaders, our political leaders, our medical leaders, yeah, you know, they're the yep. ones that we can rely on for facts. Well, that's not the case anymore. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, it, we we're we're used to a situation. We're used to a scenario. You know, over the years, where in you know, in a crisis like this. Um, presidents, uh, political operatives, they'll, they'll follow the lead of experts uh, at times like this. And Trump has obviously not done that. Uh, and he stands out, you know, amongst, you know, in terms of leadership for most Western democracies as being the only one that really has taken this strategy. And, and this stuff, and this matters because public opinion is shaped and, and behaviors are shaped by elite, elite sources of communication. So they, people follow the lead of their leaders. Um, you know, what Trump does matters for Republican voters who look to him for guidance. Um, and, you know, it's, we like to think that, you know, everybody should follow experts and the like. And, and normally that's probably a good thing in most contexts. But the, the reality is that most people follow their, their leaders, their politicians. Uh, and in Canada, we've, we've been very fortunate that, that our political leaders have not taken a strategy where um, they're dismissive of COVID and endorsing conspiracy theories. And as a result, we don't have as much partisan or ideological polarization in Canada. The U.S. hasn't been so fortunate. And leaders, and it's a, you know, it's a lesson for us. Leaders matter. 
if you, I, I was going to say, if you spend a lot of time on social media, first of all, you shouldn't be doing that much. But anyway, for, for those who do, uh, there's there's a, a a common thread that runs through this, and I've seen some of the, the folks that usually pop up. Uh, I hate to use the term "usual suspects," but time and time again, uh, the ones that are advocating uh, the COVID nineteen conspiracy theories oftentimes yeah. are also advocates of other conspiracy theories about politics, absolutely. about yeah. rigged elections, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. They're they're kind of super spreaders of of misinformation and conspiracy ideation. Um, you know, these beliefs hold together. So if you survey a person, if they're if they believe one conspiracy, they're very likely to believe others. Uh, and the people that are endorsing certain conspiracy theories on online are also likely to endorse conspiracy theories online, and that's that's because conspiracy ideation it's it's a it's a concept in itself. The tendency to to see patterns where none exists, uh, to to think that you know that there's machinations behind every sort of uh, of public policy. These these things go together, and so it's not surprising that we have uh, individuals that uh, you know endorse. A whole the whole gamut of, of different uh, conspiracy theories online uh, and in turn influence others. Uh, the only thing that's novel here is that we've never had conspiracy theories in such prominent positions of power uh, in a major country. And that's uh, that's where the problem lies. Well, the other thing, too, about uh, how these things are spread so quickly, of course, and let's talk about the role of social media in this. And uh, this discussion uh, is, uh, I think, focused on those platforms, on Facebook, on Twitter, and, and others, uh, yeah. where you'll find an awful lot of these things. And, and and finally, we're starting to see some officials wake up to the realization that maybe maybe there needs to be some sort of control there, either self-control yeah. or not. And much to the consternation, I mean, the, the, the folks at Facebook, Zuckerberg and others, uh, don't seem to want to do this. And they say it's up yeah. to the to the reader uh, to make yep. up their minds in situations like this. But do we go down that road again of saying, you guys, if it's, because there was an instance, of course, where one of Trump's t- tweets was taken down because of misinformation. Yep. Do we need to have more of that? Yeah, I like this is this is a really tough question. And I, I honestly don't don't have the answers. What I, what I will say is that, you know, we're we're asking a lot of private organizations uh, to monitor speech online uh, and to do so in a, in a fair and even balanced manner. You can imagine um, that, you know, going into, uh, you know, down the road where they build up an apparatus to monitor information online, that that gets abused. And because private corporations, you know, aren't in the democratic domain, nobody elects them. Um, the legitimacy of that is, is very much an open question. So the you know the appropriate policy mechanisms of dealing with this uh, you know it's it's a very very tricky matter, um, but I think you know we don't in, in the way the way things are going right now, um, you know it's it's also about these elite sources these politicians Donald Trump he's he's spreading misinformation through the mainstream media as well who are covering him uh, in a you know in an effort to be balanced um, you know they're they're picking up rhetoric that he's using. And so, you know, in this context and, you know, and down the road, if the Republican Party continues to be so unwell, um, you know, I, I think it might, to, to some degree, it's beside the point because, um, you know, you have a party that at, at the top has conspiracy theorists. They have no, no uh, you know, they have no problems with spreading misinformation on a regular basis. And that, that, infor- that, that affects the entire information ecosystem, not just social media. And how to wrestle with that um, is, is, you know, very much on the table still. 
we, the consumers, I guess, have a role to play here, and maybe should share some of the blame about this this crisis, uh, the, the conspiracy theory crisis, because we, I, I think, statistics and surveys that have been done recently, Eric, seem to indicate yeah. that we gravitate to social platforms or even mainstream media or any kind of media that substantiates yeah. our point of view, not broadens yeah. our horizons. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true to some degree. So that's kind of known as a, an echo chamber effect, where you where you tend to to select the sources that you agree with. But, it's, but it's, it is important to keep in mind, though, that you know, when you survey Americans about what news they're consuming, and Canadians as well, that most people get most of their information from credible mainstream sources. And that's true of Republicans and conservatives. It's true across the entire political divide. There's very few, very few people kind of zero in on a, a handful of sources like Fox News or Breitbart or the like, and then only consume information from those sources. The bigger problem is that people tend to read articles, regardless of sources, that tend to conform to what they already believe. Um, and, and, you know, one, one kind of possible solution to this, uh, when, when there is misinformation in an article, is to have warnings um, attached. Um, you know, that, that seems to, there's been some experiments that have been done that it seems to improve um, people's uh, people's behavior in, in the sense that they're less likely to believe misinformation when those warnings are present. Um, but, you know, it's, it's still an open question as to what we can do about it. Well, and the impact, of course, is uh, is monumental here. And we talk about uh, the, what some people are referring to now is the inevitability of a second wave uh, because yes. we seem to be letting our guard down. Uh, yeah. Fascinating topic. Eric, uh, a real pleasure to have you on the program to talk about this. Thanks so much for the time today. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Take care. Eric Merkley, of course, a PhD uh, fellow at the University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Mental health advocates are working on alternatives to police intervention uh, when somebody is in a mental health crisis. There have been some tragic stories, uh, many of them Toronto-centric, but it is not a problem unique to Toronto by any stretch of the imagination. And, and the names, sadly, are, are names that have stuck with us because of those tragic situations. Ejaz Chowdhury, uh, uh, Deandra Campbell, of course, uh, uh, Regis Kaczynski-Paquette, and, and there are other situations that actually were shot, and in some cases, well, the one fell off a balcony, but death as a result of, uh, well, we don't know as a result because they're still under investigation, but there's got to be a better way. It's been a hot topic of discussion, a very controversial discussion over the last little while. Uh, Global News uh, anchor Alan Carter I had this to say about it. How many more bad apples mm-hmm. and how many more times do we have to say better training and all this sort of stuff? And how many people have to die before we really get a hold of this and ask ourselves, mm-hmm. why are we sending guys with guns to deal with people with mental health breakdowns? Well, there's a question that deserves an answer. Uh, we'll d- talk about that and lots more with our guest. Rachel Bromberg is a co-founder of a- an organization called Reach Out Response Network. And we'll explain in just a couple of seconds how this network came to be and, and the impact that it's having. Uh, Rachel, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us today. Thank you for having me. We're answering, we're asking all the right questions, that is, uh, you know, about why police are involved in this. Uh, there have been a couple of different things that have been sol- offered up as solutions here. Uh, clearly, though, we seem to be at a, a, a crisis point. I mean, every one of these situations that I just outlined uh, should have been a crisis point, but now all of a sudden the accumulation of these and the culmination of these have a discussion going on, not just in Toronto, but right across the province right now. So before we get into some of the possible solutions, please talk to us about how uh, the Reach Out Response Network was formed. Uh, I know this was the impetus for it, but, but uh, this, this is, I, I think, an incredible idea and a great first step uh, to try to find some solutions. Yeah, 
So my colleague, Asante, who co-founded the Reach Out Response Network with me, Asante Houghton, um, he and I have actually been doing research for the past close to two years now on different different models, different mental health emergency services that exist across Canada and the United States. Um, and I actually co-founded the International Mobile Services Association last summer um, with some colleagues in the United States. Um, it's basically like a service providers network that connects individuals across Canada and the United States who are building civilian-led mobile crisis services in their communities. So a lot of this work has been done over the past few years, but over the past couple of months, after all these major tragedies that you were that you were mentioning, um, that's when the city of Toronto got very interested where they decided, you know, the change that people have been advocating for for many years, um, that we need to bring that change here. But it's not a new conversation. This is actually a conversation that's been happening um, for a really, really long time. It's just that there's there's been some political will to make the changes more recently. I was reading some uh, material about this when I found out you were going to come on the show today, and, and, and your uh, co-founder, Sadi Hotton, uh, made an observation, which I think is, is, is very germane to this conversation. Uh, he called this the, the tragedies that occurred, all this sudden interest that has resulted in all of these tragedies, an unfortunate serendipity, which mm-hmm. I think is probably a very apt way to describe what's happening now. It's, it's terrible that we had to go through this to get to here, but we're here now. What are we going to do about it? Right, and I think... What we know is that these kinds of tragedies have really been happening for a long time across Canada and the United States. And even if you think about smaller scale, you wouldn't call them huge, momentous tragedies. But you talk about, you know, someone who calls 911 for help for their loved one. And instead, what they get, police show up, police handcuff the person. um, And it really scares the person. And we're not talking about, you know, people dying or being even physically injured. But we're talking about a less than optimal response, not because police officers are bad people, but just because, you know, that's what they're trained to do. Um, and it's just, it's it's about getting the right responder to the right situation and matching the skill sets appropriately. But, you know, recently, it's, it's not that these situations are new, it's just that people are paying attention to them in a different way now, especially because of, like, the fact that a lot of these situations are on video now, whereas 20 years ago they weren't. Let's let's walk through a process here to try to draw a picture here and paint a picture as to how this response works. And and I know Asante's uh, experiences uh, are, are probably characteristic of what happens. Uh, he has had because of uh, some problems with himself and with others, uh, has had to call uh, emergency services because somebody is in mental health uh, distress. And sometimes it was he that was in that distress situation. So you call nine one one. Well, who's going to respond to nine one one? So right now, the people who respond to 911 are police yeah. um, for a mental health crisis. And we do have mobile crisis intervention teams in Toronto that are police partners. You have a police officer who is paired with a mental health nurse, but they're secondary responders. They can't be dispatched directly through 911. They will not be your first responders to the scene. They can only be called after your primary response unit police officers get there first and assess the, assess the situation, and they won't respond immediately. So they don't end up getting called in a lot of situations, and they're just, they don't have the capacity in terms of funding 
to respond to all the situations that they should be. They're only able to respond to about 25% of all mental health calls that they should be responding to, which is basically calls that don't involve violence, risk, weapons. They're only able to respond to 25% of them just because they don't have the capacity or funding. Uh, and your point uh, at the beginning of that answer, I think, is, is well taken here, because when I've talked to officers uh, who, who are speaking about some of the concerns, uh, the, the first thing they say is, look, we're not we're, we're not trained to do this. We're not trained mm-hmm. to make those assessments. I mean, they may have some cursory knowledge about it, you know, and, and, but, you know, are they the, the right person to respond to a mental health crisis? And are they able to identify, even if somebody doesn't call and say, I'm having a, a mental breakdown? Uh, when they're called to something, how can they make, in, in usually in the flash of a couple of seconds, or uh, if they're lucky, a couple of minutes, to make an assessment about what's going on and, and how it should be treated? Right, exactly. Like, even the best police officers in the world, the nicest guys with the best police training, they are not mental health care workers. You know, people go to school for many years to learn how to make these assessments, to learn how to support someone in crisis, how to de-escalate them, how to connect them with resources, and it just, we're asking police to take on a task that they're not really capable of doing. You know, we wouldn't send a social worker to go apprehend a bank robber or stop a mass shooting. But we're asking police every single day to do social workers' jobs and peer support workers' jobs and counselors' jobs. It just, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, and I know outgoing chief uh, Mark Saunders in Toronto, the Toronto police chief, uh, was was addressing the situation as well. And, and I mean, I know you're well aware of his comments on this when they said, uh, you know, mm-hmm. police shouldn't be responding. Uh, agencies like yourself, like a Reach Out Response Network, uh, should be handling those calls. And he says you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, take it away from us. You know, it's it's one less thing that we can do, and and concentrate on on what police are supposed to be doing. But in the past, when that question was answered, okay, don't send the cops anymore. Who's going to do it? Uh, there, there didn't seem to be an answer. But now, because of this grassroots movement that that you and and Asante and others are starting to move toward now, there is an alternative. Right. Like this is what Chief Saunders said. Um, I mean, he said a number of times that you know we wouldn't want to just like take away this responsibility from police officers and have nothing replacing it. We need to build a service first that has the capacity and is you know well-trained and is able to respond to these kinds of calls and has the infrastructure behind it. So that's really what we're proposing is to have this team available 24-7 across the city of Toronto made up of mental health clinicians, but also made up of peer support workers who are coming from the communities they serve. So in different areas of the city, that could look different. For example, in areas where there are a lot of newcomers from a particular place, you would have folks on the teams that speak the same languages as those people do. So what you would have is basically immediate response times because the team is spread out throughout the city. So you have different teams in different areas of the city. They can get there quickly. They know the community. They know how to provide support to that community. They're trusted, and they can help people stay safe when they're in crisis. Rachel, this is one of the things that I think has confounded an awful lot of people, and, and I'm glad you're addressing this. I mean, when somebody is in a in a crisis situation and they, they call 911, uh, you know, if, if I call 911 and say my house is on fire, they're going to send a fire truck and, mm-hmm. and a crew. If I call and say, hey, somebody just fell off my roof and I think they're injured, they're going to send an ambulance. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when somebody calls with a mental health crisis, 
there, there previously there was there was there was not that element of, the, of of the emergency response units to say hey we're trained to do that now that's being offered as an alternative uh, and and i'm hoping that that other communities are going to gravitate to this as 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 an alternative and in other words making the, the reach out response network and mental health experts are part of the 911 response team yep that is our proposal to the city is to integrate this service into 911 so that our team can be first responders to crisis because historically what we've seen is that amazing services like the Gerstein Center in Toronto do exist that provide mobile crisis response, but just because they're under-resourced and underfunded, they can't get there immediately and they're not integrated into the 911 service. So when someone is in crisis, 911 is often the number that they know. They don't know the 10-digit phone numbers of a whole bunch of different agencies across the city that might be able to help. So it's really important to us that this becomes part of the 911 system, that people can call 911 and, you know, how they say at the beginning of the call, you know, do you need ambulance, fire, police? What if you could have ambulance, fire, police, and mental health? And they could send out the mental health team to respond to the mental health crisis. That's our vision. Because one of the common factors here is, is by definition, when somebody who's dealing with a mental health crisis, either with themselves or, or somebody that they're with, uh, and calls 911, they are by definition in a stressful situation. They're mm-hmm. edgy, uh, and, and you know, de-escalation has to be, the, the I would think, the first thing that you need to do when you come on a scene uh, to try to assist somebody in a situation like that. Uh, and de-escalation is not just, hey, just chill out, man, we're going to be okay. I mean, the, you, you need to be trained in this. You need to know how to handle different situations. And uh, and now you're offering that because of, of your life experience in some other agencies. How difficult is it going to be for other uh, communities to, to to do what hopefully Toronto City Council is going to adopt in, in the situation? Uh, because there are mental health supports in place in many of these agencies, but uh, do they need to start from square one, or is it just simply morphing into what they already have and, and becoming part of this 911 emergency response? I think there are lots of different models that we see across Canada and the U.S. Particularly the U.S. has been very innovative in terms of creating mental health emergency services, like, for example, the CAHOOTS program in Eugene, Oregon. They've been operating for 31 years, and they are integrated into the 911 system, and they send out crisis workers and paramedics um, or nurses. They have a crisis worker and a medical professional who will respond to 911 calls related to mental health, but also related to Lots of other issues, for example, people experiencing homelessness. Um, they, they'll sometimes respond to like domestic disputes, that kind of thing. Anyways, CAHOOTS responds to 20% of all 911 calls across the city of Eugene. So I think that we need to be looking at models like that. And also in larger cities, for example, Denver recently launched a similar team. New York City is about to launch a similar team. And we need to make sure that our approach is also taking into account the unique needs of Toronto and the unique systems that exist within Toronto, but there are really good international models that we should be looking at for developing this kind of team. Uh, and so many variables have to go into the into the, uh, the construct of something like this, as you say, ethnic diversity and things of this nature, mm-hmm. uh, so that you've got people that can respond in kind uh, to any particular emergency. So it's it's doable. It's very doable, uh, which begs the question, how come it's taken so long and so many tragedies had to occur before we got there? But 
as we said at the beginning of our conversation, this is where we are now, uh, and what are we going to do about it? I mean, there's been not there's a lot of talk in the past, but not enough action on situations like this. I mean, we were outraged when we heard of each and every one of those tragic situations that I outlined at the beginning of the program. But sadly, in the past, uh, after a couple of weeks of outrage, that just seemed to get into the back of our minds. But we're in a very, very trying situation, a very stressful situation uh, for a variety of reasons that can have an impact on people's mental health. But uh, with what we've gone through with COVID and what we may still be going through for quite some time with COVID right now, uh, the need has never been greater for what you're doing than right now. Yeah, absolutely. We think that this is a really good moment to start, I mean, putting together an implementation plan for Toronto and running a pilot, hopefully really soon, to really show that this team can work in Toronto and can have really positive outcomes for service users in Toronto. Well, you know, the program that you outlined that we've had in Hamilton for a couple of years now where the, the, that mental health worker you know, will respond as well as, as police, uh, we know has de-escalated and diffused some very tenuous situations in the past. Uh, but to have somebody who's on, on tap to, to, and trained properly right on site initially uh, could probably go a long way towards de-escalating and, 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 let's face it, putting people in a much better frame of mind to try to deal with the crisis as it's happening. Yeah, and we also, you know, police partner teams have some benefits, particularly when you have a situation where there is a risk of violence or harm. But what we see with most mental health crises, we, you know, our network has done a lot of research on this, is that very, 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 very few of these calls involve any violence, risk weapons whatsoever. So we think it's really important to reframe mental health crisis is a health crisis. It is not a crime. It is a health crisis, so it's really important to have health professionals, which includes um, clinicians, but also peer support workers. Those should be the people responding to the health crisis. And would that person who responds uh, have the flexibility uh, and the wherewithal that if uh, they find that the situation is getting out of hand or if there is a possibility of violence that they can reach out to, for instance, to police and say, look, yep. we need, we need uh, to use the old phrase from TV, we need backup here? Yep, that is a great question. So the teams that we're looking at in Eugene, Oregon, and Olympia, Washington, and Denver, Colorado, all of those teams, their civilian workers carry police radios. Okay. So they have a very good relationship with police. They, if they get on the scene and there's something happening, they're like, oh, we need police. They can call immediately, get back up. But what we see in, in, for Eugene, for example, they took 24,000 calls last year. They only needed police backup on 150 of those calls. So it's not a common thing, but it is something that they can call for if they need it. And, and as we said, uh, the, the interesting thing about this is when you talk to police about this, uh, they're, all, they're all for this. They're on side with this. In other mm -hmm. words, it, it, it's not just, hey, we want less work. It's that, you know, what we, this is what we're trained to do. This is what we're, we'd rather concentrate on. Uh, it was really by default, I guess, that a lot of these calls fell to police uh, because there was nobody else there that could respond in a, mm -hmm. in a, in a, fas in a fashion that, you know, expeditiously, like, like police can in a 911 call. But, uh, and again, this is, this is, I think, part of the solution. It's not the only solution. God knows that this is a very complex problem. It's going to take an awful lot of discussion and some frank discussion by all the, the people that are interested in this and that, that have a stake in this, the stakeholders in these discussions. But if we can tr in initially offer a different system that's, uh, that's going to be beneficial to police, to you, and to the people that are actually calling 911, uh, we're a better community because of it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that this is a really important step forward. And, you know, if anyone listening wants to learn more about 
our work, you can send an email to toronto.reachout at gmail.com, and we'll share more information about the stuff that we're doing. Rachel, congratulations uh, to you and Asante and everybody involved in the organization uh, for the advocacy and for the work that you've done. And listen, continued good luck. I hope this is uh, the first of many conversations you and I will have about this uh, fascinating program and the benefit it can be to communities right across this country, right across yeah, North America, too. I guess, really. Thanks yeah. so much for the time today, Rachel. Thank you for having me. Take care. Rachel Bloomberg, of course, who is the co-founder of Reach Out Response Network. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.